Good morning, everybody. Happy Memorial Day. I hope this weekend is great for you. We were expecting all kinds of thunderstorms and we planned on being inside all day yesterday and the weather was awesome. So we were outside as much as we could be um, doing our a pastime we have discovered that is fun, that is full of social distancing. We go fishing and if anybody gets close, you just poke them with your fishing pole and they stay back and it's outdoors. Uh, we catch nothing. We catch no fish. <laughs> so it's almost like we're just standing around by a lake with poles in our hands. Um, but Grace caught a whole bunch of fish. So that was something. No, some of us do catch things. Well, today we are in Matthew chapter five and we are beginning what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, um, it could have been taught all at once in like a monologue, but that is not, um, that's not the style of a typical rabbi in Jesus's day. And that is not the style that Jesus teaches in a lot of other places. Um, but that is, I mean, rabbis would sometimes sit down and speak for a little while. Probably not the length that the Sermon on the Mount is. Um, but we also know that Jesus would go out teaching and crowds would follow him and listen to him all day long. And so he may have spoke all day long, um, you know, to this group for a little bit, to this group for a little bit, to this group for a little bit. He might have told different stories all day long, that kind of thing. And um, occasionally people would ask questions, you know, Jewish uh, rabbi, rabbis would teach in a very question answer format where people would ask questions, they would ask questions back and it would, it would be a, a dialogue kind of teaching. But we have the Sermon on the Mount and it's beautiful. There are a couple different ways that you can look at the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to get into that. And um, if you follow along, if you've got a Bible that has headings, it's really easy to see a heading say something like uh, divorce, murder, adultery. And you think that's a quick reference and you think, oh, here's Jesus's law about adultery. Here's Jesus's law about fasting. And Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. That would be very contrary to the character of Jesus and the context of the whole New Testament and the context of the Old Testament. Uh, he is not just dishing out a new law for us to follow. It's, it's a new teaching trying to get us back to the point of what the law was supposed to teach us. But because of our hard hearts, we didn't get it. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, Matthew chapter five, it begins with the Beatitudes and the Beatitudes are sort of proclamations by Jesus establishing here's what reality is. Here's what's true. Here's what's real. It says he saw the crowds. He went up on a mountain where he sat down. His disciples came to him. There's actually a little church. There's a big church built 
where they say the Sermon on the Mount happened. And it was built in like the 1200s. There's a little tiny church that was built in the 400s. Whoa, in the 400s. And it is a church that's built to commemorate the Sermon on the Mount. And it's down at the bottom of the hill. Who knows if they're, either one's accurate, but um, either way, he went up, he went up on a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so they shall, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your, re your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we don't usually talk like this. Blessed are you, Jim. Blessed are you, Pat. Right? Um, but we do say, oh gosh, man, you're so awesome. I just can't say enough good things about you. I just can't say enough thing, great things about, right? That's what blessed means. Blessed, this, the, this literal word means to say a whole bunch of good things about somebody more just to carry on about how awesome they are. And, uh, so read that. I mean, some people have said in the past that it means happy. And it, it kind of means happy because happy is the result of somebody saying a whole bunch of good things about you. Does that make sense? So, um, yes, you would be happy if somebody said a whole bunch of good things about you to you and complimented you a whole bunch. But the it's it's really the, the root thing is to say a whole bunch of nice things about you. So there's a whole bunch of nice things about people that are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I can't say enough good things about people that are mourning because they are going to be so comforted. There's so much good to say. There's so many good qualities about meek people. And they're going to inherit the earth. That's what that whole thing is. It's just, it's just really, oh, it's so great. It's so great to be merciful because you're going to receive mercy. It's so fantastic. It, it just, oh man, Do, have you known somebody that was a peacemaker? They'll be called sons of God. Just wow, what, what a great thing it is to be a peacemaker. So all of these things. All of these things Jesus is really complimenting and Jesus is really honoring. Now, a lot of that stuff we hear and you think, yeah, that's good. 
and you acknowledge that it's good to be a peacemaker and you acknowledge that it's good to be meek. Um, but you don't really know what the practical, how do I do that? What are the steps to that are? And that's what the rest of the Sermon of the Mount on the Mount is going to tell us is here's how to be these things. Here's how to be poor in spirit. Here's how to be um, a peacemaker. Here's how to be pure in heart, step by step. And then when you are all of these things, you're going to be the next part. You're the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So this would be hilarious. Um, if, you, if you said you don't take a lamp and put it under a bushel basket, well, the bushel basket's gonna burst into flames and catch on fire and be a big mess. Uh, the other thing here is that he's saying, when you do this stuff, you're gonna be a city on a hill. When you do this stuff, you're gonna be salt that doesn't lose its saltiness. Don't just deliberately try to be light on a hill. It, it's the outcome of it. A lot of times we get into this is where we get into law. This is where we get into legalism and, and rules and, and regulations. And, and uh, we start to worship the institution instead of the point and the intent. And, you know, institutionally, I can say, here's what we do to be a city on a hill. Here's what we do to be a, light, a lamp on a lampstand. And then I do those things with bitterness. And then I do those things with uh, with you know, revenge in my heart or, or callousness in my heart. And I'm not being a city on a hill when I'm doing good deeds with bitterness and with judgment, right? I've lost the point at that point. And so all these things are the outcome. They're the overflow of it. Being a light on a stand is the result of doing these things in the heart. Is not a new law. He, Jesus even hints at that in Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to replace the law and get rid of it. I've come to fulfill the law. And so if he was coming to abolish the law and institute a new law, hold on, I gotta wave at my neighbors. Um, if he was coming to instill a new law, then he would be abolishing the old law. And he's not. He's coming to fulfill it. And so everything he's going to talk about and everything he's going to do is to fulfill Moses' law. It's not to, to cancel it out or replace it. That's, that's very important. That is... That is a real key to realizing Jesus isn't just giving us a new law. He says, not one iota, not a dot will pass away. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
So he's not talking about abolishing the law, but he's also not talking about don't eat shellfish and don't wear a wool cotton blend. So what is he talking about? Oh, we got to keep going. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were professional righteous dudes. They prided themselves on it. Uh, there was one group that had uh, bruises on their forehead and scabs on their forehead because they were so holy, they would walk around with their faces down so that they would not look impurely on a woman or cover it, a house, and they would run into things. And their running into things was a sign of their pride that they weren't looking covetously. And so they would they were honored by their marks on their head. That's how righteous they were. They were so, you could see as soon as they took their hat off, you would see how righteous they were because they would smash into things. Um, I remember one point I heard that James was nicknamed Camel Knees, James in the Bible and uh, in the New Testament. And um, he was called Camel Knees because he prayed so much. And I thought, ooh, I want to, I want to have, I want to, I want to pray so much that I have knees that are just these hard, callous things so I can kneel down anywhere. And then I caught myself kneeling down to pray in rougher spots to roughen up my knees. And um, the point is not to roughen up your knees, <laughs> right? You just, you just put the cart before the horse there and you did it backwards. Um, the point was to pray a whole bunch and if you pray a whole bunch on a rough spot, you're going to have rough knees. But if you pray a whole bunch on um, velvet, Jesus doesn't care about your knees. He pray, cares about your heart and your soul. And so um, praying, praying is what matters, not what surface you're on. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they were looked at as righteous. People saw them as righteous because of all the work they went into to be righteous. And you have to be more righteous than them. For real. For real righteousness. Not just external righteousness. See, Jesus, he knew what the... the I mean, this is going to come up. He's going to tell Paul to write it later. What the law couldn't do to our hearts, what the law couldn't do to our soul, Jesus came and did himself. It says in Romans 8, this is Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, what the law was powerless to do. Okay, so the law is great. People love the law. It's okay to love, to love God's law. But it was powerless. It was powerless because it was weakened by our flesh. We couldn't do it. God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us 
who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the key right there. That Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The only way that can happen is if God himself were to live in you and to guide your life. And that is what Jesus made possible by taking away our sins. And then the Holy Spirit comes in on Pentecost. And now we can live according to the Spirit and not by the flesh. Now what's really wild is you might think, well, yeah, but I stole a hubcap last week. And so I'm living by my flesh, so I'm not in the Spirit, so I'm not righteous. Well, that's the other great part is that Christ has made you righteousness apart from your actions. This is, this is Romans again. Um, a righteousness apart from the law has come in Christ. And this righteousness that is apart from whether or not I obey the law makes me righteous. And it's by faith that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead and put his Holy Spirit into me. And so now that his Holy Spirit is in me, I live out the righteous requirement of the law. It's never, it was never, you know, Moses gave the law. God gave the law to Moses. Moses, it was, it was instituted by angels, it says in Hebrews. And it was all a way for us to express our faith to God. I believe that God takes away sin. So I'm going to go get a, a calf. I'm going to go get a, a, an unblemished lamb and I'm going to sacrifice it because I believe that God takes away my sin it's not this lamb is going to take away my sin because then we would worship lambs it's not the sacrifice of the grain is going to uh, redeem uh, these doves I'm going to give are going to redeem my firstborn the power is not in those doves. Otherwise, we would be worshiping doves and that'd be idolatry. The sacrifice of the doves, the sacrifice of the lamb is an act of faith showing that I have faith in God. So that's why they, they kept the law. Now we keep the law by living according to the Holy Spirit. No, now we express our faith by living according to the Holy Spirit. I don't know what to do right now. I'm going to call on the Lord right now in this place, believing that he'll answer me, believing that he'll lead me and he'll help me. That's life by the Spirit. So in that context, let's read the rest of five, but know that it's not a new law. It's what life in the Spirit looks like. And it's not a formula. There is not a flow chart. It is uh, personal and interactive between God and each one of us and between God and each one of us all together as a community, as the body of Christ. All right, so first we're going to talk about murder versus reconciliation. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser 
So basically, Jesus is saying, if you're about to offer a sacrifice that had to be offered at a specific time of day in a specific way, it is more important that you abandon that sacrifice. Go find your brother that you're mad at or that is mad at you and reconcile and make it right and then come back and do your offering. This is straight out of Isaiah, right? You, you people come to me with your heart, uh, you come near to me with your sacrifices, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. If I'm offering a sacrifice and I hate so-and-so, if I'm, if I'm worshiping Jesus and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that dirt bag, piece of trash, jerk, I mean, didn't Jesus die for that guy? Didn't Jesus offer himself up for that guy that I hate? It's, I mean, it's like if I bring you some of my wife's chocolate chip cookies and you say, it's amazing that somebody so ugly could make cookies so yummy. There's going to be blood. There's going to be blows. <laughs> There's going to be a fight. Do not... Do not enjoy my wife's cookies and criticize her at the same time. Well, at the same way, this person is in the body of Christ. They are part of Christ's bride. And so if I go to Christ criticizing his bride, what good am I doing? I'm not doing any good at all. So reconcile first. In uh, the original language where it says, you fool, that word is, it has a in it. And it's a word that you wouldn't be able to say without spitting afterwards. And so if you called somebody a name, if you called somebody that name, uh, you would likely be spitting on them after you said it. And the um, under Jewish law, if you spit on, um, if a man spits on me, then I my retribution I have to give him is 400 days wages because I've dishonored him so much. So it really brings to mind it's a real dishonor to call somebody a fool. Um, just just to, to say it another way, when we criticize people, when we put people down, when we talk bad about people, <clears throat> it reveals more about us than it does about them. Uh, for one, people, if they don't know the person that we're criticizing, they don't know that we're right. We might be wrong. And... Um, <clears throat> that person might be really great. And then that reveals even more about us, right? If we criticize somebody, we're revealing what, what measure we are judging people and measuring people by. And that might be just a ridiculous measure too. And so let's put away all criticism. Let's put away all cut downs and insults. Um, I can't tell you how many times, especially during the, the pandemic, I see somebody on the news and they say something just really stupid and I want to call them an idiot and I want to say, gosh, what a moron. And, uh, and I catch myself because that kind of judgment is up to Jesus. And that person that I want to call a moron, Jesus died for them. And, and even if they don't believe in Jesus, at some point, I hope they do. And I don't want to call anybody that Jesus loves an idiot or a moron or a jerk or whatever, fill in the blank, right? 
I want to offer them up to Jesus. I want to say, Jesus, have you considered them? Look to them. Have mercy on them. So suddenly, this is not about murder and hatred and name-calling. It's about, do I have the authority to be their judge? It's about, am I going to pull Christ down and, put, and get into Jesus' seat and proclaim myself as their judge? Yikes! Don't do that! That's why you're liable. It says you'll be liable to the council and liable to the hell. The hell of fire. Because uh, you're pulling Jesus down and saying you're the judge of that person. No way. Make peace. Do everything you can to be at peace with other people. Um, do what you can that they would not hate you. And do what you can between you and God that you wouldn't hate anybody else. Then he goes in. You've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery. This is Matthew 5, 27. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the whole point of all of this. It's not, uh, you need to look around low. I mean, that dude with the, the bumps on his head because he's looking down, all he's thinking about is looking at women lustfully. That's on his mind constantly. His whole back ache, neck pain from looking down all the time is is total idolatry. Um, we can do this about a lot of different things where we can pride ourselves at how, um, you know, I've, I have never smoked a cigar and I could carry on about how righteous I am that I never smoked a cigar. I could carry on about how righteous I am that I've, I've never tasted vodka, uh, whatever. And all of that, now I'm worshiping the vodka. Now I'm worshiping the cigar. If all I think about is not looking lustfully, all I'm thinking about is how I look lustfully, whether I do it or not. Ugh. Your heart is already sold. Jesus gets crazy here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members. Yeah, chop this stuff off. Um, okay, so none of the disciples were blind and none of the disciples were, were missing any hands. And one argument for that would be that they lived perfect lives, that they, um, that they never sinned. Another, another way to read this is that Jesus is a storyteller. And he's saying, be extreme about this stuff. Be zealous about it. Run after it passionately. Love purity. Um, don't think that just because you're looking down at the ground, God doesn't know you're not committing lust. Be passionate about this stuff. It's about your heart. If you, if you spend all of your time wishing for something that you don't have, you're committing adultery. You're committing covetousness. In the same context, he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So 
if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, like it's a list of laws, you just got two more about divorce. I don't think that's how we're supposed to read it. I don't think it's a list of laws. I think it's an explanation of what, of what life by the Spirit looks like. The other thing is that it's in the context of adultery. So, see, in Jesus' day and today, uh, there's Jewish teaching um, about divorce. And there's writing in the Talmud where it said, if a, if a wife spoils her husband's dinner, then that is grounds for you. He can get a divorce. And so there were, there was controversy of, you know, some people followed that rabbi and some people didn't. And so the question is, people would ask a rabbi, if my wife burns my dinner, can I divorce her? And some rabbis would say, yes. Other rabbis would say, why did she spoil your dinner? Was it because you're abusing her? Then you need to quit abusing her and, and you shouldn't divorce her. And then there are other rabbis that said, you can divorce your wife anytime you want, no matter what. And so there were guys that would be like, you know, I bet she would cook a better dinner than my current wife. And they would just divorce their wife just like that. And, um, and go get the younger wife. They're not caring about their stomachs, right? Uh, it was really bad. It was bad. It was bad in a, a covenant union perspective. And it was bad in a social justice perspective. Because now, um, when the guy decides that he doesn't like his wife's cooking, and he likes this younger lady's cooking, um, this older lady is left out like a widow. She doesn't have anybody to look over her. She's got no source of income. Uh, the only way that she's going to be able to remarry is going to be a bad way. And so it, it was really tough. Um, so when Jesus says this, he's saying it in the context of adultery and looking lustfully at women. He's, he's saying, don't, don't put out your old wife just to get a, a young, hot wife that's going to cook better, right? None of this is about cooking, by the way. Um, even though the law, the law written in the Talmud, the, the addition to the Mosaic law, it said if a, if a wife spoils the man's dinner, she can divorce him. Gosh. To be fair, in that same writing... Um, because there's a controversy between the rabbis about when divorce happens, there's this really awesome quote where they said, uh, Rabbi Eliezer, he said, if a man divorces his first wife, even the altar sheds tears. Which is like, oh, wow, awesome. So, um, so don't take this as a law. Take it as a teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven that, um, that, that, Marriage is between two people, and it's a union. It is not a selfish way to pick um, a better way to get breakfast. A better way to get your breakfast not burnt. No. Then he goes in. There's, there's two more things I want to talk about real quick. Um, this whole bit about swearing versus honesty. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's the Mosaic law. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, 
for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for by its footstool, or by Jerusalem. He's saying, don't swear. And um, a lot of people read that, and they say, oh, i got to quit cussing. And this doesn't have anything to do with cuss words. Um, this, we we had a funny, a funny thing where, um, you know, somebody comes up to you. This, this happens in a couple different places, right? Uh, they'll say, you know, can I have, can I have 20 bucks for gas for my car? Or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm homeless and I need some money to get a cup of coffee. I need 20 bucks to get a cup of coffee. Um, and you say, no, I, I don't believe you're going to do that. And they might say, oh, I swear to God, I'm not going to buy booze. I swear to God, I'm not a drug addict. Or uh, one time I was talking to a guy, he said, I swear on my mother's grave. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Easy, tiger. You don't have to bring your mom into this. Yeah. Or I swear to God. You don't have to bring God into this. If you're honest, you're honest. If you have to bring in some sort of other authority to claim honesty, then that shows that you're dishonest. Right? <laughs> if I have to prove to you uh, with a whole bunch of other words and documents that I'm being honest, you're obviously going to question my honesty. And that's what this is all about. Um, I got this. I just love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this awesome book. And the middle of it is this great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it's, the book is called The Cost of Discipleship. And it's, it's, it is hard to read. It's a slow read, but it's really, really good. He is just so good at how he explains stuff. And, um, and that's what, that's what he talks about. If, if you, if I should really believe you when you swear, then what about when you're not swearing? I can't believe you. So you just introduce this. Sometimes you're honest and sometimes you're not. That's why he wraps it up. Let your, yet let you, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Anything more than this is going to make me question that sometimes you're honest and sometimes you're not. Just be honest. And then at the end is this whole business about revenge and forgiveness. Matthew 5, 38. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? That's a low blow. Tax collectors are evil. He's saying, if you just love the people that love you, you're just like a tax collector. Good job. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Remember, city on a hill, light on a lampstand, not just normal. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection is mentioned in this non-judging 
love of your enemies area. Well, all of this is all going back to who's the judge. If somebody punches me and I judge them and I condemn them, that person, they punched me, they deserve to be beaten. And then I punch them back. I've just enacted judgment, right? If I do what Jesus does and I let God be the judge and I let God hold all judgment and I don't put myself in his chair, now suddenly I can love my enemies. My enemies do something terrible, do something awful. We had uh, some kids right in our front yard. yard um, they, Levi got off of his bike for a minute and some kids came, jumped on his bike and ran off. And this is the kind of thing you hear about on the news, right? Um, the, the, the angry white guy gets his gun and shoots some kids and everybody's like, where's the justice? Well, the justice got all messed up because angry guy with the gun decided whatever this person did was worthy of judgment and death. And so they killed them. And, um, you know, I'm upset, but a bicycle isn't worth a life, right? So I come running out and I jump in my car and I take off after him and I actually catch the kids and and I could have just plowed through the whole mass of them and run them all over. And justice would have been done, right? No, that would be terrible. And so um, I talked to them and I tried to reason with them and they didn't listen and they rode off with the bike. But I, I give this example because a lot of times this is what we do in our hearts with our enemies, right? Somebody does something to us and we just rage up into, oh, I'm just going to beat their face in, or I'm going to have revenge, or I'm going to hate them for all of my days. And we forget that Jesus died for their sins. And Jesus is the judge. And Jesus sits in a chair of judgment. It's in Revelation, right? He's on the throne of judgment. And do I want to tell Jesus, get out of your chair and let me sit there and judge this person? Dang, no way. I don't want to be that guy, right? What's better is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Because if I judge them, I'm pulling Jesus out of his chair. And I don't want to do that. Now suddenly, I want to greet everybody. I want to, I want to be a blessing to everybody. Because the other thing in this whole deal is if I hate somebody and I want to have revenge on them and I want to curse them, I would like to say, I would like to argue that I don't really have a good understanding of hell. Because hell and distance from God is so awful and such a terrible thing, such a wretchedness and such an eternity of suffering that I would never, ever, ever want anyone to experience that, no matter what horrible thing they've done to me. And so that's where life by the Spirit comes in. Life by a law, I'm going to do to you whatever you do to me. And that's vengeance. And we call that justice. And we call that equal. But it really isn't. Because that person, you know, the drug addict's motive 
is to get take away their their withdrawal symptoms and to get more drugs if i kill them back my motive was vengeance and that's almost dirtier and lower and more evil than the uh, anonymous killing just to satisfy an addiction this is a hard teaching, right? It's hard when your bike gets stolen. It's hard when somebody gets killed. But Jesus is saying he's the judge. He's saying he rules. Leave these things to God. Let God deal them out. And then what happens? Suddenly you become this overwhelming person of joy. Because you don't have to keep track of who you have to hate. You, you don't, you know... I just regret that I couldn't have revenge like I wanted to. That's miserable, right? What a miserable life. Because if you live a whole life, you know, it's it's the guy in that movie that, um, uh, my name's Inigo Mintoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, right? And the Princess Bride. That guy lived his whole life in idolatry to have revenge for the sake of his father. Ah, oh, again, it's idolatry. It's not following Jesus. And then, here's what's going to happen next. What's really great about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus tells all this stuff in chapter 5, 6, five, six and 7. And then 8 through 28, he's going to go and do it. And he's going to really do it. And we get to see that. These folks hearing this didn't know that. But we get to read the Sermon on the Mount through the perspective of Jesus's whole life. And when you look at Jesus on the cross, he says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. I need that level of forgiveness. I need forgiveness from Jesus that's at the level that it goes to the levels that I don't even know what sin I'm committing and he will forgive me. I need that every day. And that's the kind that he offers. And that's the kind that he he shows when he loves his enemies. Man, that's a worthy place to stop. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great day today and that this all blesses you. God bless.